Welcome to Harrison Church. We are excited to announce a new way to communicate at Harrison. Realm is a digital tool designed to connect our church with its members. Contact your small groups, coordinate group activities, RSVP to church events, manage your giving, and so much more. Visit onrealm.org to sign up today. Realm will launch officially in mid-February. This week, part five of Pastor Shane's series on making sense of Revelation. are uh, kind of hearing about this new way we're going to try to stay connected together through this app called Realm. And in a couple of weeks, can you believe it's February, on February 18th, we're actually going to launch this. And we think this is going to be a great communications tool on your smartphone, your mobile device, your laptop. In a couple of weeks, you're going to be receiving an email from us, uh, an invitation for you to opt in and to enter the Realm. And what we're hoping this will do and what this will do is it's going to consolidate all of the ways in which we have been communicating with you. It'll all come through this app. You'll receive a notification. If you're a part of a small group, you'll be re- reminded. You can look at your giving statements. You can text people. There are privacy settings. But you can do all these things, and it'll be a great tool for us to kind of stay t- connected together. And all the notifications will come through this app. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to invite you to join and enter the realm. If you don't receive an email from us, you know what that means? It means we don't have your email address, or you've been spammed, and you'll need to check your spam box. So look for that in the next couple of weeks, and I'm really excited about what this will offer uh, to the church. Uh, But enough about that for now. Um, Let me just, first of all, just thank you for being here this morning on a day like this. Uh, I was telling some people just a little while ago, you know, I'm a pastor, and this is one of those days that if I were not a pastor, (laughs) I would want to stay at home. And this reminds me, I think I've shared this with you, uh, Bishop back in the 1980s was uh, delivering a a homily to some people who were about to be ordained as full-time elders in the church, and he said, you know, the only reason God has called you into full-time ministry is because God knew he could not trust you to come to church every Sunday. Uh, And I I say that, though, in in all seriousness, I am grateful that you are here. It's a nasty day, and, and, you know, we're coming in here, and it's kind of dreary outside. We're getting ready to open the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation. It's kind of dreary these next couple of chapters as well. So uh, I'm glad that you're here. And I, I hope that you have been learning some things about Revelation, that it has provoked you. It's caused you to think differently, and I thank you for your patience I mean, I've been giving a lot at you. It's kind of like that song we sang, uh, the second one. That was fast, wasn't it? It reminded me of my preaching. We were just going. Um, but let's, let's get into this, this book. Now, we are uh, in part five now of a six-part series. So next Sunday will be the last sermon on Revelation. Uh, and what I have tried to establish every week is that Revelation is a political resistance letter that an author named John wrote to seven... Christian communities, and he wrote this letter to encourage them with all the great visions of worship, the the martyrs who kept the faith, who who surround the throne of God. That was a means of encouraging uh, these Christians, and he was writing this letter to warn them and to warn them to resist, resist the Roman imperial ideology Now, what John does so often, we're going to really see that today, is that John is really trying to unmask. He's trying to expose the Roman imperial propaganda as being a giant lie. 
See, Rome in those days promoted itself as being all just and good and righteous, and and John is really contradicting that. We're going to see that in just a few moments. Now, the thing that I I really am also trying to establish is that John is writing this letter. He is writing this history. Uh, It is a viewpoint of current events, and he's writing it from the perspective of someone who is on the bottom of society. He's writing it from the perspective of those who have been dominated by the Roman Empire. He's not writing it from the perspective of those who have dominated. Does that make sense? When we write, when we write from the perspective of those who are on the bottom, that is going to challenge the perspectives of those who are on the top. Now, it's kind of a, a, an easy analogy, but I think it applies. And I said this last week, if you can Ameri- uh, imagine American history written from the perspective of the slaves... Do you think it's going to look different from history written from the perspective of the slave owners? Do you think? It will. So we have to remind, we have to get into John's imagination. He is writing from that perspective. And so uh, last week I said that we would be spending time in the, the, the judgment scenes in Revelation, which are critical to this letter. We looked at some last week, and now we're going to go into chapter 17. You should have your insert. We will have the verses behind me on the screens. But what we're going to see is that John, right here in 17, is continuing to expose the Roman propaganda as being this giant kind of lie, and he is unmasking it in many ways. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 17, verse 1, John says this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and the bowls refer to the bowls of wrath, which was a play on the Exodus story, remember the plagues of Egypt? Uh, That was all the bowls of wrath. Nevertheless, uh, the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. Now, it's going to become pretty clear to us a little bit later why, why John is using all this very suggestive, very provocative imagery. Verse 3 and 4, John says, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, a beast should ring a bell. We talked about the beast last week. Sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. Now, in the ancient world, the colors purple and scarlet were the colors of royalty. The colors of royalty. That's a clue, then, what John is referring to in these verses. So the woman is clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And in verse 5, he says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon! the great mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And then in verse 6, John says this, And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. Now remember, John wanted this to be heard in the context of worship. This is pretty provocative stuff, isn't it? Wow. Now I have heard, maybe you have as well, uh, over... Uh, the years, uh, it's really been popular for the last uh, four or five hundred years that people will refer to the harlot here, this woman. Clearly, it's a reference to the popes. 
Or somebody will say it's the Catholic Church. Uh, or some kind of antichrist. No. See, that's taking it out of context. Uh, the first giveaway, if we're going to identify who this woman is, it's actually uh, John's reference in one of those verses when he refers to her, the name written on her forehead. What was the name written on her forehead? Babylon. Okay, this is important. Because Babylon was the evil empire, according to the Jews, the evil empire that came into Israel, plundered Israel, destroyed the temple, enslaved the people of God, and shipped them off into captivity where they had to live in that foreign country of Babylon. It was the empire in Israel's day. Now, think about this. What empire has plundered the temple and, in John's mind, has oppressed the people of God? The Roman Empire. See, John, over and over again, he continuously, he's repeating himself over and over again, saying the same thing, just using different symbols and different imagery. So if it sounds like I'm repeating myself every Sunday here, saying the same things, it's because that's exactly what John is doing. So Babylon is a cipher. It is, is another word that John is using for the Roman Empire. But I need to say this. Babylon could refer to any power that dominates others. Okay, it's not just Rome. Any imperial power that oppresses others. Okay, but it's in verse 9. I want you to look at verse 9 of chapter 17 where the reference becomes really unmistakable. This will become clear to you. So the woman is riding on a scarlet beast with uh, seven heads. And we've already seen what the beast refers to in chapter 13, which is another, you know, word for the, the emperor of Rome, the Roman Empire. But John says this, that the seven heads are symbols of seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Or we might say seven hills. What is the city that sits on seven hills? Rome. See, you guys are becoming scholars already. Rome. It's clearly a reference to Rome. Now, you can also see this. I did not uh, put it on the, uh, the screen, but in chapter, excuse me, verse 18, the woman you saw was the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. A clear, another reference to the Rome and the Roman Empire. Remember, Rome was the seat of the Roman Empire. Now, what is going on here? There is little doubt in my mind that John is taking a symbol the most popular symbol that the Roman Empire, the Roman administration used to personify itself in those days. There's no doubt that John's playing on that symbol. If you were living in the first century and you were to travel to the conquered regions where Rome has conquered other people, you would have seen in Rome and in these conquered lands a particular image. You would have seen it on carvings. You would have seen this image on statues. And it would have been the image of a woman that Rome said personified what the empire was about, and it would have been the goddess Roma. The goddess Roma. I think we might have an image of Roma. Did I get that to you guys? Do you see an image of one of the people of Roma? I sent that. Okay. Well, what you can do is you can just Google Roma, and she was a beautiful woman. And she, she personified this kind of strength, this kind of attractiveness, um, very mesmerizing in her shape. And you would have seen her just all over the place. And what John is doing, 
in chapter 17, he's taking the image of Roma, and he is just vandalizing it. He is saying, there, there's an image of Roma, okay? Strength, you see that? Ah, yes, dedicated, holding the world in her hands, ruling, right? But John is taking that image, and he's completely overturning it, radical way. So the Christians listening to John or hearing these words would have known exactly what he was referring to. The effect, I think I said this on my first Sunday of our series, the effect on John's Christian hearers, the effect on them would be the equivalent of me taking the female image of our country, which is whom? Lady Liberty. And saying to you, Lady Liberty is a call girl. Now you just let that sink in. That's provocative. But what John is doing is he's trying to unmask and expose the Roman propaganda for what he believes it really was. It's a lie. It's a lie. Now, uh, as we get into chapter 18, I do want to kind of say this, this image of the harlot. Well, if you think about it, how how does a harlot... uh, earn money. Um, it, it, a harlot earns money through immoral acts, okay? It's wealth generated through immorality. That's going to be critical to our understanding of what's getting ready to happen in chapter 18, okay? So again, chapter 17 is John's take on that woman right there that, that the Roman Empire presents itself so beautifully, but it's not. She is actually street corner girl. Just radical in, in so many ways. Now, I do want to say a couple of, of things. This is sort of a, a digression for a moment. Um, but the Roman Empire, its propaganda, it presented itself in several ways. Now, I've talked to you about the first way. The primary way that the Roman Empire presented itself is that it always presented itself as a nation devoted to peace. It was a peaceful nation. We have referred to the Pax Romana. You ever heard of this? The Pax Romana, you probably heard, heard this in history class. It refers to the peace of Rome. So Rome always says that we are a people dedicated, dedicated to peace. But what John says is that the woman personified in Rome is drinking the blood of whom? The saints, the witnesses to Jesus. She's not peaceful. <laughs> She's a murderer. So he's overturning this idea of the Pax Romana, that we are peaceful. No, it oppresses It hurts. Another way that the Roman system promoted itself in those days is that it believed, and you especially heard this from the Caesars and the priests of Caesar, that it was the exceptional nation. Rome believed that it was the indispensable nation. There's resonance there, isn't there? But it did believe It was exceptional. And the reason it believed this is that the Caesars would say this, is that the Roman Empire believed that the gods of the universe had appointed Rome, had appointed the system of Rome to spread its values and its rule of law throughout the world. And the proof that they appealed to that demonstrated it was appointed by the gods was through Rome's military victories. That shows that we are the divine vessel. We are the chosen nation in the world. 
And because it believed the gods had appointed Rome to spread its values and its rule of law throughout the world, Rome always said it was innocent of any wrongdoing, of any complicity in evil, that all of its actions were justified. That's how it did it. But what John is doing here to his Christians is saying, resist. Resist that. This is a nation that harms and that murders the weak, including the martyrs and the witnesses of Jesus. Heavy stuff, isn't it? But that's exactly what John is doing here. Is this a political letter or what? Yes, it is. Right in our New Testament. Provocative stuff. Okay. And what John is actually saying is that Rome can't be the chosen uh, by the gods because the true God is whom? The Lamb. And the Lamb doesn't kill. And, of course, that's what John is encouraging the Christians to do, you know, to be nonviolent in their resistance to the Roman imperial state. Okay. Now, uh, if you move into chapter 18, uh, we are going to come now to the very end. We're, we're coming to the, the, the climax of the judgments of God in the letter of Revelation. All the plagues, the locusts, the frogs, the ulcers, you know, all the things that he appealed to that sounded like the Exodus story in the Old Testament. The judgment of God all is getting ready to come now to chapter 18. This is its climax. This is the culmination. And what I want you to understand and, and what we'll look at is what form does the judgment of God on Rome take? This is fascinating stuff. Now, I will warn you, I'm going to be skipping through some verses. I think you'll have uh, the verses here on your screen. But if you have your insert, or you can just look on the screen. Chapter 18, verse 1. I'm going to be reading a few verses to you. John says this, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. Skip over to verse 2. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is whom? Babylon. Who's Babylon? Rome. Fallen is Babylon the great. Now skip to verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then notice what he says. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her luxury. Now look at verse 9. And the kings of the earth will weep and wail over her, Rome, when they see the smoke of her burning. And what will they say? But alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth Weep and mourn, and mourn for her, since no one does what? No one buys their cargo anymore. Now skip to verse 15. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her, the Roman economic system, will stand far off, weeping and mourning aloud, and they'll say in verse 17, For in one hour... All this wealth has been laid waste. And then in verse 17, John says, And all the shipmasters and the seafarers, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, 
stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. Now I'm going to ask you a question. If you were to describe this in our contemporary terms, what does this scene sound like? It sounds like a crash of the economy. What we are seeing, God's judgment, is going to be, John is saying, the crash of the Roman economy. Now, if you look in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 18... I just want to point something out to you. Um, John hears voices, the martyrs, saying, as, as she, Rome, glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief, since in her heart she says, I rule as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. Now you switch over here to what we just read. The empire that said nothing bad will ever happen to us because we're exceptional. We are the exception And we'll always be here, and we will always endure, vanishes in the span of how long? One hour. Now, don't take that literally, but we're talking about a very quick period of time. How quickly, how quickly Rome's power will dissolve in an instant, and it will look like a crash of the economy. Now, we skipped over this, but we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is God judging the Roman economy, and its form taking a crash. Well, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 18, uh, John actually catalogs, if you'll look there, uh, several commodities that uh, Rome would have traded in, a part of the Roman commerce system. You know, he mentions things like pearls and fine linen, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, Some other things that he mentions would be silk and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood. Uh, Do you see that in chapters, uh, verse 11 and 12? If you skip down to verse 13, though, John actually gives us the reason why God is judging this economy. In verse 13, Rome traffics in cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and what? Slaves and human lives. God is going to judge the Roman economic system, John is saying, because it treats human beings like any other commodity. Rome's system benefited the few at the expense of human lives. Do you see the heaviness in that? But that is the reason. You've got to circle slaves at human lives. Rome placed profit over people. It's right there, isn't it? You see it. Slaves and human lives. Now, the image of Rome as a harlot begins to make sense. A harlot earns wealth through immoral acts. And what John is saying is that the Roman economic system has gained its wealth through, uh, through immoral acts. Do you see the connection there? Heavy stuff. 
heavy stuff. And, and John would say to us, if you're feeling the weight of this, he would be like, yes, all right, you're getting it. Right? He wants you to hear this. He wants us to feel the weight of this. This is how the early Christians would have felt as well. Um, John, like the rest of the Old Testament prophets, and I think this might be helpful, John, like the rest of the prophets of the Old Testament and really the witness of the Bible itself, he believed that you and I live in a moral universe. He believes that God has designed a moral universe. God designed creation and all the things to happen in creation to operate on a moral universe level, on a fair level. So if things are operating morally, if you're fair in all that you do, in your business, whatever it is, creation will flourish. But if you act immorally in a creation designed by God morally, it will self-destruct. It will collapse. So, so if it's moral, this is the biblical understanding. If it's moral, if it's just, it is sustainable. You can act justly forever. If it's immoral, it will fall apart. And the falling apart is the judgment of God. Let me give you kind of a, 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 a crazy analogy. I've kind of always wanted to be an auto mechanic. Let me just confess that to you. I really have. So I do a lot of my own maintenance on my car. I've learned a lot of stuff. Anyway, think about the engine in your car, the typical combustible engine. What is the one lubricant that that engine was designed to run on? Oil, okay? It was designed to have oil in it. Now, you drain the oil from that combustible engine, what's going to happen? It is going to, it's going to unravel. It is going to seize. It is going to be destroyed. Why? Because it was designed. It was designed to have the lubricant of oil within it. Without it, it doesn't work. It falls apart. Okay? So, imagine, if you will, imagine creation and the systems within creation, whether it's governments, whether it's your job, whether it's your family. Imagine all of creation as an engine and imagine justice and fairness being the oil. Drain justice, get low on fairness, what's going to happen? It's going to fall apart. But you keep the oil level, you keep the justice level up, and you make sure everything is operating as it should be, and it will continue to run, okay? So justice in the biblical concept, fairness in the biblical concept is the lubrication within the machinery of creation. I love it. Do you get the analogy? So John would say what's going on here is that we have a few people who gain their wealth at the expense of others. Some people flourished economically while other people in the Roman system suffered economically, that cannot stand and the judgment of God is upon it because it's immoral. That's how John understands the workings of even the economic system. Now, we might be able to connect the dots. On the first Sunday, John, uh, remember he referred to the church in Laodicea, that affluent congregation? 
And, and Jesus gave them such a hard time because they were so wealthy. Well, the reason Jesus may have given them such a hard time is that maybe that congregation was benefiting from this kind of economic system. But the Roman Empire shall be judged, John is saying, through the crash of its economy. Now, we should um, note a, a couple of things that happened in chapter 18. Now, I want you to imagine, imagine what were the merchants and the, the, the wealthy people, uh, how were they responding when the Roman system was collapsing? What were they doing? Do you remember? They were weeping. They were wailing. But that's not the only emotion you see in chapter 18. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her that is Rome. And once again, in verse 24, John says why. Because in you, Rome, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered on earth. Now notice right here, John's not just talking about the witnesses to Jesus. Anybody who has been oppressed at the expense of the merchants, God shall avenge them too. Profound, universal call of God's concern for the plight of all those who have been oppressed economically. Now the question we want to answer is like, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Oh, <laughs> uh, what, what, what's, our, what's our task uh, as Christians? And I believe that John tells us exactly what we're supposed to do in verse 4 of the same chapter. In verse 4, John hears, right before the judgment, right before the economic collapse of the Roman system, John hears an angel crying out to the Christians. And the angel says this, Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. My people, so that you do not partake of her sins. And that, in my opinion, is the most important verse in the entire letter of Revelation. That is the one, that is the most critical verse for you to understand exactly what John has been trying to do from the get-go in the whole letter. He is, it is a call to the Christians to come out. Opt out. Don't do don't live according to the values. Don't live according to the, even the economic values of the imperial system. You've got to live differently. John would not understand in any way a Christianity that blends in with the rest of the culture. Someone called it beige Christianity, which is funny. You know, back in the 70s, everything was beige. John would not understand beige Christianity, a Christianity that just kind of blends in with everybody else. No, John sees the church. John sees the Christians within the church being a countercultural alternative to the Roman system. We are called to opt out. The way of the lamb has no dealings with the way of the beast. But... If we can follow the way of the Lamb, in the next chapter, which I didn't cite for you, but you can look yourself, if we can follow the way of the Lamb, we will be participants, we will be followers with another woman who is truly beautiful and truly just, the bride 
of Christ. Heavy stuff. John's call to come out and resist. Now, we're, we're getting ready to end, uh, end our time together. I'll invite the, the musicians to come forward. Uh, but what I've done for the last couple of sermons is I've ended the sermon with a series of, of questions for us. And these are questions that I believe have come from my wrestling with chapter 18 especially. But I'll leave these with you. To what extent might our own economic system harm others? To what extent might the wealth generated by our global economy come at the expense of human lives? Is there anyone going hungry, for instance, harvesting our food? Is there anyone going naked, making our clothing? What is the true cost of our conveniences? Here's the hardest question of all. But I'm with you. I'm with you in this. If the economy crashed today, would we be among the weeping or the rejoicing? How can each of us, how can you opt out and participate in a fairer trade, a fairer system of commerce? These are not just economic questions for John. These are matters of salvation. These are demonstrations that we are trying to follow the Lamb. Let us pray. Well, gracious God, your servant John just levels us with such a profound vision. And I I pray that we will hear this as good news. But as so many of your prophets have said, sometimes the word of God is bad news before it is good news. But this is our hope. And I pray for this congregation and for the people who have heard and sat at the feet of John, that we would be a people who will leave this place asking ourselves, how can we come out? How can we do things differently? Help us not be trapped and limited, that there are no other alternatives to the way things are. There is an alternative. Help us follow the way of Christ, that we might lead to the flourishing of human lives and not to their hurt. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.